G'day everyone, welcome to Conversations with Code 9, the very first episode for 2023. I'm your host Tiffany Cook and I am an ambassador for the Code 9 Foundation because I adore the work that Code 9 Foundation are doing to help support those who have come from working as first responders, police, paramedics, fireys, all of the wonderful humans dealing with what trauma and difficulties they have been exposed to from the work that they do that maybe you maybe that's you that is listening so thank you for the work that you do now i have two amazing guests today not one but two pat and jazz and as you may know the code nine foundation loves to support the development of assistance dogs in australia and pat and jazz are assistance dog trainers so this is such an exciting and amazing conversation i hope you guys enjoy it as much as i do thanks for listening Pat Stewart and Jazz Whiting, welcome to Conversations with Code 9. Hi, thanks for having us. How are you doing? Very good. I'm pretty excited because you guys, you guys are dog people and dog people, dogs are my favourite people and my second <laughs> favourite people are dog people. Right, perfect. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but I'll have to admit to you that this year I become a cat person as well. Yeah. So that's, um, I don't know how you feel about that, but we better get that out on the table straight up. Uh, my son's asking me for a cat recently, so I, I may be about to become a cat person. Wait. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just can't imagine the logistics of it. But I'm going to take a couple of strays we've got that uh, sleep under my van or on my porch at my place. Yeah, I think we need a kid and we have to start from scratch. I'm not, I'm not bringing in some random no, no, adult. <laughs> it is, I tell you what, it is a, Don't stop. <laughs> it's a whole new world. It is a whole new world. I had a, I had a dog up until April and lost her suddenly, and so – in a month after that, I thought I'm not ready for another dog, but I would like another something in my life. I'll get a kitten. You know, you get really uh-huh. catfished by a kitten because uh-huh. they are just so uh, free flowing with love. And, you know, they, they catfish you and then next minute they own you and you're like, oh, I didn't know this is how this relationship was going to play out. Yeah, well, that definitely won't be the case if I get a kitten. <laughs> <laughs> you might be a little in no time. Yeah. yeah, you're a bit better on the training front than I am. Anyway, a big welcome to the to the show. And I guess to start with, I don't know a lot about both of you. I've had a little bit of a look um and I, I found all I needed to know and that was the whole dog person thing. But maybe we'll just hear a little bit about each of you and how you know one another and we start with you pat if that's cool yeah cool uh so my name's pat stewart i um i'm a dog trainer uh well i'm, I'm lots of things and a dog trainer is one of them uh i was in the army for 12 years i was at two commando regiment there um was there for sort of my entire uh, military career i did two years at the special forces training center but it's you know it's all part of the same group um i was introduced to dogs on a deployment in 2008 um, where I saw my first like military working dog. And like I'd had dogs my whole life, but wasn't, you know, like was a dog person, but didn't really know anything about training them. And then um, my first interaction with a military working dog was with a a foreign dog. It was an American guy. Um, And uh, saw my first live bite and sort of saw the the way that uh, dogs could really truly be employed within that military setting and sort of became a little bit obsessed with it and came home and, started really obsessively researching it and getting into it. And at the time, Two Commando uh, was four hour then. We didn't have dogs in the unit. And that sort of came in in about 2012. 
Uh, so by the time the dogs came into to commando, um, it was me and many, many others that were sort of, you know, pushing to bring dogs in. Um, I was the sniper platoon sergeant at the time. And so I, you know, wasn't able to become a dog handler. Uh, but when the the dog unit raised with, I sort of was on the peripheries of it and was acted, you know, my, my sort of final role as I was leaving was that I acted sort of a, as a platoon sergeant to the, the dog cell. Um, but like I said, I wasn't a military dog handler. I, um, I didn't deploy with a dog or anything like that. I just had like a, a strong affinity with it. Yeah. Throughout that time, I really got into training and, and really into dog sport as well and became sort of somewhat obsessed with that. Uh, and then I left the army in 2015. I, I broke my back in 2011. So I was kind of on the downward trajectory from there. Like I, I, I really should have medically discharged right away, but I was able to stick around for another four years and work within the capacity that I could. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a little boy in 2015 and that was kind of like, okay, I'm out. Um, and became a full-time dog trainer from there. And, you know, initially started out just in pet dogs because, you know, that's what you have to do when you start that I had to develop a profile and stuff like that. And now I, I don't really deal in pet dogs at all. Um, I really only work in, um, I, that's not true that it's not pet dogs at all. I, I work mostly, no, exclusively with <laughs> dogs that are trained to do stuff. So like I don't, uh, I tend not to do sort of any more in-home behavior modification, stuff like that. Yeah. Mostly what I do at the moment is work with working dogs of a sort. So my, my, you know, my preference is biting dogs. I prefer police and military type dogs. Um, but also I'm more actually much more heavily involved in the sports that surround that. So I, I will act as a coach more than anything to people who compete with their dogs and show their dogs and, you know, compete in all sorts of things from agility to uh, bite sports and stuff like that. Bite sports. Mm. That is quite a term to hear. (laughs) Bite dogs. How many in the military, how many different styles of work or working dogs are there? Yeah, there's quite a few. Um, Mostly so like within the, within SOCOM, uh, there's, what we call like a cat, the combat attack dog. So they'll, they'll find people and bite them. And they also have a little bit of a secondary, um, uh, like a, you know, detection capability. They'll, 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 they'll be trained on explosive odors, but not, you wouldn't send them to look for an, an IED on a route or something like that. More than anything, you would use them to maybe find a cache in a building that you've already secured or something like that. Um, then there's, they've, they've experimented with a few other different things like scout dogs and stuff like that, which are dogs that don't bite, but just find people. They, they sort of hunt for people out there. Cause it's, it's a, you know, it's a much less of a training liability. And the truth is with most special forces guys is that, uh, they don't need a dog's help to apprehend people very often. What they need the dog's help for is to do dog things that they can't do, which is finding people moving fast, moving in that hunt in a way to find people that, you know, using their nose, using their dog senses that the guys don't have when it comes to the fight, like the guys are more than capable of winning the fight without a dog's help. So, um, but then, uh, there's also within um, the engineer regiments that support special operations are uh, the, uh, the, uh, full detection dogs, so that are explosive detection dogs. So they're the sort of three types, and and I'm not sure that the scout dog program continued on very well. So I think it's mostly just you find within SOCOM. There's just the combat attack dogs as well as the uh, explosive detection dogs. I reckon I'd be a cad. I reckon I'd be a com. I reckon I'd bite people if you I reckon? were. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be my area of expertise. Should I it's be? A- a- should I ever come back as a canine and fi- fall into that line of work? Yeah. It's a funny one. So like people think of it, um, you know, they're very specific dogs, right? Uh, it's a very unique, um, 
set of genetic traits that allows a dog to do that sort of thing because dogs just aren't really built to yeah you hear of dog bites and stuff like that right and a dog might bite someone if it feels threatened or if it feels needs to or something like that um the dogs that go into that role uh they're not biting the way that you would imagine like a dog, you know, like a someone's pet bites them and runs away. It's that kind of stuff. The genetic funnel that allows a dog to look at a person and see a person as prey and say like, Hey, I'm going to hunt you down. I'm going to bite you and I'm going to destroy you. That is a very narrow genetic funnel that a dog has to go through. So first of all, you, you sort of filter by breed bloodline, but then even just because you have the right breed, just because you have the right bloodline doesn't necessarily mean that that dog has the courage to do that. Right. And, and, and actually fit into that. So that's why it's a, it's a, it's a tricky industry. It's a tricky place to work because you might be, you could be the best trainer on the planet. That doesn't mean you're going to get every dog through because they just don't have it. Right. And that's the same, you know, in my old profession working within those special forces units, it, you, you might get someone who looks the goods um, can do all the physical stuff is physically capable of doing it, but just doesn't have the right mindset or doesn't have like one or two of the right attributes. And that excludes them. It's the exact same thing with dogs. So it's a very narrow genetic funnel that those dogs have to go through. When I was young, I had a next door neighbor moved and gave me their dog that they mm -hmm. couldn't take with them because he'd never been yarded or tied up or anything. And they were moving away and it was in a German shepherd cross and mm -hmm. he would follow me everywhere. And this owner would always say to my mum, he's protecting her. And he was an alcoholic. So mum was like, yeah, sure. Yep. Cool. Righto. But uh, <laughs> my dog would, if I was in trouble at home, if anyone looked as though they were about to raise their hand to me or yell or come near me, he would literally put his mouth over their wrist, snarl, and just look at them. And he would never, ever bite, but mm. he would look at them. And I was just like, wow, no one can touch me. I feel like that was a waste of a, of a genetic, the genetic potential to be a working dog. Yeah, perhaps, for sure. <laughs> anyway, hey, let's quickly hear from Jazz. Jazz, tell us about yourself and how did you guys meet? Um, so basically I came out of school and joined the army, uh, same as Pat, but I didn't go in the same process as he did. Um, I just went into normal army and got posted up to Townsville for the first year, but then I came down to, um, special operations, uh, logistics squadron. Uh, I was in there for basically most of my time. So I was in for six years in total. Uh, I broke my back in 2014 which I think is actually the same fracture as Pat's or part of it is, which is yeah. kind of ironic. Yeah. Uh, now, basically how we met was my, so I got medically discharged. Um, obviously I had the back fracture, but I also had uh, have PTSD unrelated to the army, but um, needed to medically discharge. And during my medical uh, discharge process, my case manager was the case manager that, he, that Pat had. So I spoke to her about um, the fact I was going to get an assistance dog and there was a program in the army at the um, related to the army at the time that helped veterans train their own assistance dog. That was part of the, the rehab process sort of thing. So I was getting into that program, but the trainer that I was issued was not quite suitable for what we needed and for what my dog needed. And she suggested that I get in touch with Pat because, you know, he's ex-commando, he's getting into dogs. He, he, uh, she thinks that, that we'll get along and that could work out well. So I get his email address and shoot him off a, 
long ass email and he sent back about two sentences to go, cool, man, I'll meet you here this day. And I did not show up. I got, my, <laughs> I, uh, I got my, I got my time wrong. I literally left the house at the time I was meant to arrive. And I, I still cannot like live that down. It's, it still bugs me. Um, but he said, Oh, no problem. All right. I'll see you next week. And I was like, okay. Um, rocked up the following week. And I guess you could say probably every week since then, um, we've trained dogs to some level. Obviously he was, he was coaching me a lot at the start and has continued to do so. But in that process, I've then started my own dog training business. Uh, I did certify the dog that was a, <laughs> was definitely a hot mess. She got certified. She's now retired though. Uh, I don't need her anymore. And yeah, I've got my own dog training business. As Pat said, started um, like he did. He, he started in pets. That's exactly where I started uh, in the last probably two years. I've been easing more into um, sport dogs and working dog roles as well. The, the transition there was mostly slow. Uh, COVID kind of played a bit of a, bit of a role in that. Once, uh, once COVID finished and everything, um, and, and people were back to booking sessions like normal and things like that. Um, I kind of made a bit of a, a bit of a hard cut where I was no longer doing the behavioral consults, only teaching dogs to do things, whether it's, um, pet dogs wanting to learn tricks or, or, you know, cool obedience or whatever. Um, to then now, uh, my main focus, which is kind of joint with Pat, um, I raise and develop, uh, puppies two at a time generally. And for, I do that for about 12 to 18 months and then we sell them on to uh, either police, military, things like that. So the, the people we sell them to will kind of depend on what the dogs are suitable for. We're not, we're not just going to funnel them into one role and, and, you know, try to force them into something. If they show that they're more suitable for military as opposed to police, they go to that. If they're more suitable for police in certain ways, then they go to that. So, um, that's, that's basically what we're, what, what I'm doing at the moment. Um, and that's, Taking up most of my time, I guess uh, they do. They do require um, a fair bit of training, but uh, majority of it is is learning to live in society and live with me. So that's that's my main focus. But I do do other consults with um, sport dog and and some pet people who want to teach their dogs things as well, you know, online in person and stuff. But those puppies are, I guess, the the primary focus of my business. Um, but in addition, I mean, we both do seminars and stuff. Um, I do other other things on the side as well, but. That's that's my main focus at the moment. But this that's is, how uh, that's how we met. This is really <laughs> fascinating. I got, I got a lot of questions, but the first question is, uh, what's with all the broken backs? And for the listeners, like you're in a dark room at the moment, but you're just sitting in normal chairs. These broken backs haven't left you in wheelchairs. So let's hear a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah. Well, so um, mine was uh, so I have it's it's called a pars defect on my L five. So. Uh, it's a fracture, uh, sort of not like you'd imagine. It's kind of like most people, you imagine your back broken sort of, um, uh, you know, horizontally. And this is the other way. So it's like one of my vertebrae snapped a long way. So it didn't affect my spinal cord or anything like that. I've got a few bulge discs. And, uh, I think the issue is certainly I'm about to be 40. Right. And I joined the army when I was 19. Um, and almost everyone of my vintage has some sort of, you know, ongoing, injury that from which they'll never recover. So, you know, it, it's just something you have to kind of live with. Like it, it, it is what it is. Um, my back, my, like I had snapped it during a, a training exercise at work. It, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, 
uh, all I've got a you know ton of injuries. I've fractured my back in it's in two places. I bulged three discs. I've dislocated both my hips and torn the like label tears in those hips. I dislocated a knee. Um, I have mush where there should be bones in my foot. Like just standard army guy stuff. Uh, the crazy thing is, is I, I did them all in the army. I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. I deployed all over the world, multiple places. Uh, I was the only survivor of a big IED blast. I've had lots of different things. Go I've never been injured overseas. It was all, it was all training accidents. Everything that I did, it was all training accidents. Training so, hard, easy, mate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and Jazz fell off a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Big Black Elvis. Mm, he broke my back. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, so I, was, uh, I was just on a week uh, stress leave, ironically. Um, safe to say I was more stressed after that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a bit of a freak accident. Like, I, I've I've been brought up around horses. Uh, my my parents back when they were together and everything, like, before I was born, they um, they owned horses. Uh, heck, my dad actually used to ride in the, the Shisada, which is a massive um, – a massive horse riding comp. I think it's like a 400 kilometer like ride or something through all kinds of terrain anyway. So it's like they had horses. I was then raised around them and, and rode them and stuff um, when they still had them. But then uh, I was the only one that didn't fall off as a kid. My sisters did slice their leg open on like a barbed wire fence, all sorts of things. Never, never had a problem. And then as an adult, sure, let's, let's go on a nice relaxing trail ride and, you know, find, uh, a, a couple of canters and gallops, um, uh, you know, along that ride. And I was the first one for a group of people to, to go up a hill and we we're just sort of going up around to the left and a bird flew out from the grass and <gasps> the horse spooked, darted the opposite direction. And I went where the momentum went, which was to the floor and <laughs> unconscious and, Woke up a few minutes later. Don't even know how long later, but um, the, I think maybe the difference between mine and yours. I'm not sure about you, Pat, but uh, when I woke up, I wouldn't. Uh, I could feel my left leg, but I couldn't move it. Um, oh. That was a bit of an odd thing. And you know, I did all the scans in the hospital and everything, and the doctors were like, "Well, we've done all the scans, and uh, there appears to be nothing wrong other than the fracture, and we cannot explain why you can't move your leg." And I was like. <laughs> that's not uh that's not very comforting if you've done everything to find out and you can't answer the question as to why I can't move it. And they're like, yeah, so that's that. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I do? I'm like physio. I was like, physio, I can't move it. How do I do? <laughs> so part of physio, you know, something as simple as like get the towel to move your leg, have someone else move your leg, those sort yes. of things. But everything's fine now. Um, you know, wow. it took some time, but, um, and a lot of physio and everything. I still go to physio every week with the same physio that Pat does. Mm. Um, we pretty much walk in with the same injuries considering we both decoy for, for the dogs and we both are pretty active in our lifestyle. So, um, you know, the physio is ongoing, chronic pain ongoing. Um, I've also had other injuries like the the shoulder. Re- um, uh, I dislocated my shoulder and had a full shoulder reconstruction because it was not even in the socket anymore. Yeah. Um, I've had surgery on my ankles and those sort of things. Um, but the back's the most significant injury for me. Uh, but like I... I was told I would never be able to do sports again um, or really have much of an active lifestyle. And I compete in sports now. So, um, jiu jitsu, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jiu jitsu. <laughs> I thought she only looked up the dog profile. Oh, no. I was, I, I saw the martial arts. I was all yeah. over that. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when I did my shoulder reconstruction, they said the same thing. I won't be able to play sports, especially mm-hmm. not um, contact sports. They said the same thing with the back. But, um, I just proved them wrong. 
it's, uh, it's nice to, to prove people wrong sometimes. It is always nice to prove people wrong. Tell me about the training your own therapy dog. And when you train a therapy dog, I guess the reason for that is you, you need something very individual out of each therapy dog in terms of the owner, what it needs and the process of training. I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so there's there's two kind of do- kinds of dogs. Like there's there's therapy dogs, but then there's also assistance dogs, and there's um, difference in terms of like some legalities and the requirements that are needed. So therapy dogs don't really have um, a lot of rights in terms of, and this is in Australia. I'm not sure if anyone listens to the podcast elsewhere, but um, in Australia, therapy dogs are more like someone's pet. They train them to behave, you know, really well and everything, and they might take them to a hospital or a nursing home or to a to a school and and you know everyone there can kind of benefit from them yeah. whereas assistance dogs um uh, assistance dogs are more like if you imagine a guide dog right that is one type of assistance dog they yeah. can go everywhere and they're allocated to one person and will help them specifically so um i just wanted to, to separate the difference between therapy dogs and assistance dog yeah thank so, you um for the assistance dogs they need to pass um what's called a public access test Pat, um, so not this Pat, but he helped me <laughs> my dog pass the Pat, um, which for my dog, that was a, basically a two-year process. Hey? I'm pretty sure it was about a two-year process. Yeah. Um, uh, for most people, it would it would generally be that, but mine uh, obviously had a very good trainer, so you'd think it would go faster, but she was not suitable for the job. So I'm surprised it didn't take longer, wow. but thankfully um, – you know, with, with all of his knowledge and everything, then I could get it. But basically it was, it was a full-time job. Um, I was doing my own rehab and therapy and everything, um, my own issues. But part of that, I guess, is to, to go out and work with this dog in a way, ironically, she kind of had PTSD of her own, um, not from anything happening to her, but just for the first six months of her life being isolated and having absolutely nothing yeah. um, long story as to why they were trying to do the best thing for her at the time but um so her lack of exposure in a way gave her a similar sort of um response to things as if it was ptsd mm. so everything i had to work on for myself i ended up kind of needing to work on for my dog which was quite ironic but it forced me to put myself in situations that ordinarily i would you know, yes, I need to do it for therapy, but I, I would probably avoid it a lot more. But when I have to do it to fix the dog and to help the dog, then, you know, that's a, a little extra pressure, a little more motivation there. So, um, but yeah, that was a two week, uh, two week, two year process. Um, and yeah, that was a, a massive part of that for, for getting me through that. And I did not think the day that we were going to do the pat, I didn't think we were going to pass it. And he was like, mate, like he's laughing. He's like, right, like, you got this. Um, and yeah, she nailed it. So. Super, and super did you that. say you have you kept her or did you move her on once she was trained? Yeah. Um, so I've kept her. Uh, she's oh, eight now, <clears throat> eight I think. Um, she blew her ACL a couple of years ago, and I retired her. Then I was looking at retiring her within the next twelve to eighteen months anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I just retired early because she blew her ACL. Um, it's just degenerative, you know. Um, the other one will go eventually at some point. Uh, she doesn't have the, the greatest genetics, but uh, yeah, I retired her and she's just now a, a couch potato. She's just living up the, 
the pet dog life. Um, you know, she still comes uh, places like when I take other dogs out training and stuff, she might come out, but she doesn't have any public access rights. She She's not legally allowed to, you know, come to a restaurant or to the shopping center or the cinema or something, whereas she used to have those rights because she was that qualified assistance dog. And what, okay, so why, what were her expectations on her pre-retirement? So why did she get retired and lose those rights? Um, I just chose to retire because she blew her ACL, but then I was planning to retire anyway because I was working. The goal for me was to always like work toward not needing her. Um, obviously for a period of time I did and she helped me quite a lot, but I didn't want to have to rely on that all the time. It's like, um, if I'm on, uh, like if I'm on medication for something, I, I want to get to the point where I don't require that medication, yeah. for example, or if I'm on, um, if I'm doing physio exercises to, to, uh, help a particular muscle or, or joint or something, I want to eventually get to the point where I don't have to do that exercise anymore my shoulder is stable and now I can do normal things with it. You know what I mean? So I, I always want to progress beyond that point of needing that crutch, so to speak. Yeah. With, with assistance dogs, they're required to recertify every, uh, depending on the, the state and legislation and stuff, but it's sort of every two to three years. Uh, so they have to reset their public access test and the public access test is, you know, like it's actually a pretty hard test. Most people's pet dogs wouldn't pass it. There's no like crazy, like there's nothing, you know, that would Im- amaze you when you do it but the dog has to be very stable and it has to be quite obedient like there's nothing you know it's not like they're running an agility course or anything like that um but they they, yeah (laughs) they have to have to be able to go into a shopping center and you know they have to be able to toilet on command they have to be very stable they have to hold it down they have to you know do all these things that just keep the public safe the 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 idea of a public access test is that they don't cause problems for other people yeah that's solicit further attention yeah you know they can't talk to people want to get pat by other people that kind of stuff and then to be an assistance dog they also have to perform a function they have to have a task that they do and so i think for people like jazz um you know that the dog is there to assist her through her pdsd and so you know you get um, a lot of people who like one of the most common things that we train uh, assistance dogs for is to interrupt self-harm behavior and so some people who are blind will have an assistance dog and the the goal is that you know the the dog shows them around helps them through life and when that dog ages out they'll need another one because they're not you know like they are dependent on the dog but when it's uh more of a psychological based thing the goal and it's not like this is what the people must achieve but the the goal if the dog is interrupting self-harm behavior then the goal is to not start self-harm behavior right and the they phase out the dog. Um, mm. And so, you know, that's uh, not that, not that that's what the dog did for jazz, but that's what I'm explaining that like there's the goal is to you know not rely on the dog and the dog has to, to have that tick in the box to be an assistance dog rather than just a therapy dog, a dog that makes me feel nice. Right. Like it has yeah. to actually do something and, and be trained to do that specific thing. And, and the, as I say, exactly as jazz sort of explained, you, you don't want to be on crutches for the rest of your life, you know, so that you yeah. treat the dog exactly like you would crutches with an injury. And the goal is to sort of phase it out over time uh, because the unfortunate reality of assistance dogs and, and neither of us are really sort of experts in that field because it's a very, um, and this is how we met Mark and, and it's a very, it's a very tricky sort of area to be in. Um, assistance dogs is, is a, a very, um, just, it's, it's hard to explain. It, it's, it's, as a trainer, it's a very difficult, um, 
uh, part of the industry because you're dealing with people who are really emotionally invested and are probably not um, actually very good dog trainers nor have the capacity to become them, right? And so there's two ways that people tend to have an assistance dog. One is that they they need one and one is allocated to them. And those dogs are then trained to perform that specific task by a professional. Um, and the dog is you know, chosen to be suitable for it. And there's a lot of gateways the dog has to go through exactly like we deal in, in working dogs, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I can fail a dog. I can just go like, you know, at the 10 month, 12 month mark, I can look at this dog and go, Hey, you're not right for this job. You, you're going to do something else. Right. You maybe don't have, you don't have what it takes. You don't have the nerves or whatever. You're going to go be someone's pet or the dog might be too high drive. And we go, okay, now you're going to go into some other working role. Um, but that's rare. There are big organizations that do that. And, and, that is fantastic. And that's, in my opinion, the best way to do have an assistance dog. But unfortunately, what happens very often is people will have, say, an autistic child or something like that. And they get a dog with a view to turning that dog into that kid's assistance dog. Yeah. And that is almost always a disaster uh, because they've, they've likely not chosen the correct breed of dog. Yeah. They've likely not started the dog correctly, right? So like, you know, um, with a dog... Dogs are being trained from the moment they're born, right? Like they're, they're learning and, and they're the, like what looks like formal training doesn't happen until much later, but the, the process has begun. Yeah. And very often if the dog has gone into the home of uh, say like an example of that autistic child probably didn't have the very best start that a dog could get. So the dog was probably much better in somebody else's hands until it's old enough that it can then be brought in. So that's kind of the issue that we, we face in that, uh, assistance dog realm is that very often people will call you and say, Hey, I have a child that requires assistance and I have a dog that I want to be the dog that will provide that. And it, it very often, it's a little bit like smashing a square peg through a round hole. Right. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, and, and it can be done in some cases and in other cases it can't. And, and that's why both of us, um, you know, I've only ever actually taken on two like proper assistance dog cases. One of them, I got stuck with a training partner for the rest of my life. <laughs> and the other was a real journey, right? Like a really hard journey with the dog. And certainly we did get over the line and, and the dog performs a troll perfectly. So it, that's not either of our area of expertise, despite Jazz having one um, and has helped with multiple people along the way. It's a really tricky part because unless you're going to be a part of one of those organizations that provides them to people, which is awesome. And that's, you know, ideally how it should be done. When people come to you, you know, training a dog is hard. It's a lot to learn and, and it's a, it's a constant thing. And so very often when people are dealing with their own issues that it can be hard enough to deal with, let alone having to, you know, deal with the dog. But then I also then have to contradict myself because very often, especially with PTSD cases, and I see this with the sort of veteran community is that it's the training of the dog that is the help. It's not having the dog. Having the dog is actually a pain in the ass very often, right? Because it limits where you can places and, and people want to interact with the dog. And like, it can be a real headache, but in many cases, and I think this was the case with Jazz, is that the training of the dog actually is the help that, that they need, right? Because it forces interactions in the community. Yeah. It forces that you now, like, you, if you want to get this dog certified, you're going to have to put in the work, right? And if you want, they very often don't have the skill set. So it's like, if you want to get this dog over the line, you're going to have to develop this new skill set. And people can grow and sort of, you know, up. They have a focus and they have a motivation. Exactly, right? I even, All those thinking, I even think around 
setting boundaries, like the idea of setting your own boundaries to create your own safety. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I learned set a boundary around my dog before I learned to set, uh, set one around me. So well, it's like that was practice. But I'll, I'll tell someone to leave my dog alone before I had the courage to tell someone to leave me alone. So, um, you know, those sort of things, it forces those upon you where you have that extra pressure, um, which is motivating to. Yeah. It's a little bit like gym, you know, it's a bit like gym in terms of a place where you can watch yourself deal with stress and get stronger. And then with a dog, you can exercise boundary setting or training or discomfort because it's worth it for the dog. You'll do it for the dog. And then all of a sudden that will bleed out into doing it for yourself. It's really beautiful. So so it's not like with the training and and the dealing with assistance dogs, it's not linear. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to say this is the right way and this is the best way, but it's not. They're, sometimes I've seen people who are in a bad place themselves get a dog and with an intent to become a, an assistance dog and it just make the whole situation much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've seen, uh, you know, and the best example sitting right next to me is where Jazz was in the exact same position and it, it opens up a new career and goes like, oh, okay, here's something that I'm passionate about and this can, you know, create a, a whole new path for me via that. And and I've seen it go both ways on multiple occasions. So it's a tricky one. When Jazz turned up to my house the first time, I, I the dog was a hot mess. Uh, and I said <laughs> so to her, I. <laughs> yeah, and I said to her, I said, you know, like, hey, I'm not, I'm not uh, looking to be discouraging here, but it is fucking unlikely that this dog is going to turn out to be an assistance dog. The only way that's going to happen is if you become a really very, very good dog trainer. And she looked me dead in the eye and goes like, well, okay, like carry on then. Like, I guess we'll do that. Please do go on. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so um, that it can really help in some ways, but it, I, you know, for your listeners, I want to sort of say like that is it's rare that that is the bit, the way that it works out because it does take a lot of guidance. It takes a lot of support and calling a random trainer. It's, it's most of them don't have the skill set to deal with that because they're no longer now just dealing with the dog. A lot of dog trainers are fantastic with the dogs, right? Um, and, and not so good with people. And now you add to the mix that the person has extra things going on themselves. So it's, it's a specialist type thing, which and is it, why for me, I was like, Oh, you know what I've done too. <laughs> I don't need to get involved in it anymore. And it's like, it's, it's not just, um, you know, it's not like it's just an hour a week or even an hour a day. It's, it's consistently training the dog mm-hmm. because every moment of that dog's life is a training opportunity. So a trainer, unless they're living with you, they're not going to be uh, able to, you know, pick up any slack. So when you're at home with the dog and they're doing things that are uh, undoing some of the training, the, like the process is going to be so, so, so much longer because the trainer can't just fix that. Like if the, if the handler um, is in a place where they're unable to do what's required, the dog's going to start to go backwards in that process. The trainer can help them like, you know, maybe catch back up a little bit, but then you'll hit a point where they're not going to be able to do the work again. Um, they don't have the capacity or whatever it is. You know, it's uh, it's either going to really, really extend the process or you're not going to reach the end, which is, yeah, what he was sort of saying. But um, it's like you you just can't imagine like that every moment of the dog's life is training. Like that's, yeah. that's just how it is. I think as well, a lot of people sort of misread dog behavior, especially, um, you know, people who want the idea of a dog that, like supports and protects them very often you get people who you know um will tell you that their dog you know they go out in public and the dog's barking growling at people and the dog's protecting them and it's like as a and they encourage that because they think that it's what it's what they want 
And as a trainer, we very often look at those people and go, actually, a dog has like leash reactivity. So when it's on leash, it's a very afraid, not for you and your safety. It's terrified for itself. It's assessed wow. the situation, realized that away. it can't run away because it's stuck to you. It finds you weak as well and doesn't think that you can support it. <laughs> so it has decided that it has to take the fight to other people. Now, more often than not, that's when you see people's little barking yappy dog on the end of the leash, that's the reason why. And, and then people say, oh, but when I unclip him, he's fine. It's like, yeah, because now he has the option to run away. So <laughs> I, yeah, those are the sort of realities of it. And very few people, when they have their dog that's like barking, lunging, growling at people, it, 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 that approach very few people look at that and go, Oh, my dog is a nervous wreck. They look at that and go, the dog is defect. It's protecting me. Right. Because that's what people sort of, yeah, you want that to be the case. And people sort of see that, but as a trainer, you go like, Oh no, this is something we have to fix. This is a big issue. And this is doing this. Like the way that we have to fix this because you want this dog to go all these places with you is to make the dog stronger because we can't just correct this away. Like we can, you know, we can't punish the dog for this behavior because he, he will find an alternate behavior because that behavior is driven by the emotional state that he's in. So now we have to make this dog tougher. Like we have to find a way to actually strengthen the nerves of this dog. And the big issue there is, you know, dogs have a genetic bandwidth of capability, just like people. So yeah. my, my personal working dog on his worst day, even in his, in his shittiest version of himself is still tougher than most other dogs because he's, you know, he's went through that genetic gateway. He, he was selected yeah. to be that he was built. He's his parents. Nobody looked at his parents and said, Oh, look, they're both pretty. I like these dogs. Let's make them breed. They looked at them both and said that because of the, the, the physical and mental attributes of these dogs, we will breed them together in order to make this dog that we want. Right. Whereas most people's pet dogs, it's just like, did the mum and dad are pretty and let's breed them. There's no real concern about their capacity to work in any way. Right. So that's, that's the challenge of the, um, of assistance dogs. And that's why for both, you know, it's a, assistance dogs are super important in the community and, and jazz is a walk, working example of the, the, you know, the effect that they can have. Um, but that's why for both of us as trainers, we prefer to stay in the working dog lane, right? Where where, where we get bit by dogs. <laughs> no, deal with ones that are biting and have to fix it yeah. and stop it. We like yeah. to create that. Yeah, we like to bring, <laughs> intention. bring the power out of dogs. And that's what both of us kind of enjoy to do in that dog space is to bring the power out of dogs and show dogs like, hey, you are, you have it, right? Like you are a, you're a powerful being and these this is the work, this is the space that you'll go into and these are the tasks that you'll perform. Um, and that's why, um, you know, we, we, we don't have a business together or anything, but we train together a lot mm -hmm. in that we've, we've, we train together just training our own dogs, but then in the raised train cell of working dogs, that's a two person job at the minimum, right? Like you can't do that alone. Somebody has to handle the dogs and somebody has to play adversary to the dogs and stuff like that. And so that's what we do together now. Which is taught me a, a massive uh, amount to do with that as well. You know, so he taught me a lot about just training dogs in general, but then I started to go into the the sport dogs and the working dogs and learn to decoy, which is uh, a decoy is the one that gets bit by the dog um, and training the dog from, well, the mouth end, not the tail end. Um, despite the fact that we are both probably the most broken in the club. Yeah. Um, we are, <laughs> so, you know, in we the, get bit and stuff. In that working dog space, when you look at um, – like jazz teaches the, with the dogs that we, we raise, jazz teaches them how to live with somebody, how to do the obedience. Jazz is incredible at teaching tracking much better than I am. Um, but my job is to teach the dogs how to fight essentially. And so you'd be surprised when you see the guy in the bite suit that, that usually is 
that a very skilled trainer because you imagine a fine job. Yeah. I mean, it is a bit, but, um, the idea is that you're teaching those dogs how to fight They're, And so it's like a sparring partner. Like when you, when you see someone boxing or, you know, in any sort of martial arts, when you get in the ring to spar, you've got a coach who's on the, on the outside of the ring and he's throwing out the hot tips, but he's not in there. The person you're sparring with is the one who's actually teaching you. Yeah. And if they're, if they're much, much better than you, they're going to towel you up in places to show your weaknesses and they're going to expose your strengths and let you come forward. And so that's, that's the role of the decoy. It's what we call them, the person being bitten by the dog is that there's a, it's, it's a, it's not as simple as the dog wants to bite. It's like, okay, but how do we teach this dog to bite? And, and, and in what mindset does he bite? And, and, right down to the sort of very technical precision with which he bites is that we teach them where to bite and even which teeth to bite with. Because like you imagine um, the way that someone's pet dog will normally bite someone, they'll, they'll just nail them and then come off the bite. Right. And then if there's sort of, uh, you know, forward pressure, they might bite again and come off. And so if a police dog bit like that, when you eventually go to court, it's very hard to justify four sets of holes on someone where the dog bit him in four different places and the damage can be really bad where what we want from a working dog of that type is one single bite we want we want them to bite in a particular spot and we want them to bite just one time and crush in that way and we want them to bite with their back teeth so that they don't puncture with their front teeth because like if a dog like bites with its front teeth and starts pulling away they're going to rip you part from part right and that's really hard to justify in court but also as well you know like most of the times that a dog is biting someone like that they're, they're probably drug affected. Um, they're probably having the worst day of their life. And when it does go to court and they get in trouble for, you know, whatever they get their punishment legally for what they did, you never want the damage that the dog did to them to be worse than what they're going to get. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, someone is, uh, if someone's stolen something and they've run away and the dog is tracking them and then has a, they don't, they don't, um, you know, they resist arrest at the end of the track and they get bitten. Well, when they go to court, they're, they're, what they're actually going to get is a slap on the wrist. Right. And the last thing you want is to have someone never walk properly again because of the whole car. Yeah. Because they've lost or never used their arm correctly again because of the way that they were apprehended or worse still bleed to death because of it. So, so there's quite a lot of training that goes into this where we teach the dogs like, no, this is where you buy it. Like, so that you minimize the damage, but also actually perform your role in apprehending the person and assisting the arrest. So it's not as simple. Like it just, yeah, when you see this kind of training, it just looks like, oh, the dog bites the guy. <laughs> but Ooh, it's like, no, there's a lot to this in order that it become, that it's done safely for, for everybody. And, and, and it sounds ridiculous, but when we say safely for the person who gets bitten, because mm. there are bites and there are bites, you know what I mean? And so I, I'm always, I'm acutely aware of that because the first, that first bite I ever saw that the guy died, it was, it was horrific. The, the, the bite was that bad. And so wow. that is the reality of what can happen. And so, you know, there's, there, there's got to be care and concern along the way in doing that. Oh my goodness. That sounds terrifying guys. <laughs> what <laughs> ter- fun. You know what, it th- what I was thinking of as you were talking though, is this idea. And I asked a question once on a podcast about do you, it's been more of a philosophical um, not killer dogs podcast, but I was like, do you think the world would be better or humanity would be healthier if we didn't have language? And the basis for that question was because I thought about my relationship with my dog and my trust with my dog and the healing from my dog and how we, you know, like we get a dog, we bring it into our life and there's no speaking. There's no, all you have is behavior. Behavior is the only truth. Mm. And, I feel it's like, like 
especially when we're dealing with mental health and PTSD and stories, all of a sudden you have to go back to a place where you have to feel your body, you have to manage your emotions, you have to deal with behaviours, show behaviours, create behaviours. You have to put the stories aside. I imagine PTSD is a lot about storage. We get a story pops into our head and we get triggered by something, our emotions go out of control and then we run around with this story. Mm. Like part of it from the outside looking in is that you get to play in a space where you're getting rid of all of that and you, you're just dealing with the reality of behavior and relationships. The downside of that is like if, um, and humans, humans are interesting. Um, we have enough trouble uh, understanding each other when we do use the same language, you know, um, uh, and words can have definitions, but even um, among different people, they can have slightly different definitions and things like that. Uh, body language would be exactly the same. People... Two people might feel angry, but their body language can be very, very different on how they display that or sad or mm. um, happy or mad or whatever. Like, uh, so I think if, if, uh, there was no language, like verbal language among humans or whatever, I think it would, um, still end up being the, the same kind of problem because it's, it depends how you learn. Same as these dogs, um, what's imprinted when they're puppies, um, often can determine a lot of, um, how they develop things can change along the way, like the whole nature nurture thing. But um, same thing with humans. Everyone learns different things and learns to present and display differently. So I don't know. It'd be interesting. To your so point though, Tiff, I think, um, you know, especially when you deal in uh, emotional support, one of the things that, you know, dogs, there's, there's some debate over whether dogs really can feel empathy, right? Like there, there's some debate over that uh, because, you know, you Empathy is a very complex emotion. Mm. Um, now, whether they can or can't, it's kind of irrelevant because it certainly appears as though they can. And I think that in the sort of emotional support of people, uh, dogs are incredible at that because of the way that they can sort of be with you non-judgmentally, right? So, like, I think when people are, you know, experiencing a very tough time, and this, you know, speaks especially to those emotional support dogs, whether they are proper assistance dogs or therapy dogs or whatever, is that a dog knows how to just be. And the dog doesn't try to solve your problems. And the dog doesn't try and offer any solutions. The dog doesn't try and compare it to one of the times that they felt unwell, you know, like in all the things that humans just want to solve the problem for people. And so, like I say, I think that um, the jury is out on whether a dog really truly can be empathetic or not, uh, but it certainly appears that they can be. And I think that that certainly, um, that form of communication with people provides a lot of support. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's amazing. Um, when you talked before about the prevention of, I don't, know, I don't know if you've trained dogs in this specifically, but I, I find it interesting, the prevention of self-harm. Is there, so in, in, in training a dog to do that, I imagine you're training it for another person perhaps. Mm -hmm. Is it, are they picking up on emotion? Is it a range? Like how many ranges of, is it an activity behavior based thing that triggers them or do they yeah. read? Like, so it's a, it's a flowing chart, right? So, uh, it kind of to see behind the veil, it starts so mechanical that you just wouldn't believe it in that we teach the dog how to jump on someone. Most dogs kind of know how to do that, um, how to sort of, you know, smother you a bit. You just do it through via affection and, and you, you know, hold food in a way like so that the dog, you teach the dog a little bit of a dig to try and like push you food, work hard to get it. Yeah. And you hold that in a way sort of on your body that results in the dog sort of pushing against you, trying to get it and like in it of a form smothering you. Mm. And then we have this thing, uh, 
yeah, I won't bother going through all the correct terminology or just bore people, but essentially uh, you put a, a command in front of that and a command to a dog. Like we always think of that as a, a verbal command, but the truth is dogs are sort of hardwired to pay attention to things in three orders. The first is some things they can feel something that's tactile is the most important thing to a dog. The second is like body language cues, right? So dogs are dogs, not wolves, because they can read your body language. The the that's what makes a dog a dog. Where the the most likely the wolves that were on the peripheries of human human settlements that could tell when they were safe versus when they were yeah you know, when they were welcome versus when they were not turned into dogs. Mm-hmm. So dogs come hardwired to read human body language. It, it, you know, there's evidence on that. They've done studies where you get like a six week old puppy and you hold it. So it doesn't know anybody. It's never seen a person. And you, you bait one cup, you put food in like one cup, and you, you pretend to put food in another and the slightest gesture towards the cup that you put the food in will be understood by the puppy as you telling it like it's in that one. I, it, and, and, there's not another animal on the on the planet that can do that. A human baby won't do that. Uh, a chimpanzee can't do that. They can no. learn it. Of course, they, they'll learn it. But a, a puppy comes hardwired to do it. And and dogs did that at the at the cost of their own communication, right? So dogs typically don't actually. They're not hardwired to understand dog body language. They have to learn that, if you can believe it. So dogs gave up it's their ability to communicate with each other in order to take on the ability to communicate with us, right? Dogs develop facial muscles that we, you know, now we probably started influencing this when we started going breed selective and stuff like that, but dogs have facial muscles that mean nothing to them just so that they can pull faces to us that we look at and go like, Oh, like I understand that you're happy or sad or whatever. Right. They, 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 they don't be, they're not able to read that in each other. It serves no function other than to convey information to us. So there's a lot about dogs that they're always watching for cues so what you do if you're going to have some sort of self-harm behavior interrupter is the cue is physical. So you would never say to a dog like, hey, I, I need your help, right? But you would simulate the cue of what a person would do when they start to do that. Now, with like young kids, especially where we train this sort of stuff, it's usually arm scratching, sort of picking at themselves, stuff like that. So you make that Genta, the cue. Genta used to do that for me. Yeah, right. That was it, yeah. yeah. So you just, in a controlled environment or if, if you're the trainer, um, you can do it, but with the person whose dog it will be, they do it at a time when they feel well and, and it's not, a, they don't actually need the behavior. They create a, like, here I am, I'm doing the thing. And then I go into back to luring you to smother me and take the food. And so it becomes just a cue to the dog, like, oh, that's the command to jump on you and take the food. Now that's like the clinical kind of training process. Now, whether the dog really understands in the end that it's going to interrupt self-harm behavior, we can never really know, right? Whether the dog is still just like running the cycle that it's learned, oh, you do that, I do this, right? Yeah. That, and, and I think it's probably both. In some cases, the dog's just running the, like, oh, it's, it's doing a trick that it's learned. Mm-hmm. And I think in some cases where the dog really truly connects with the person, it it, it, it knows what it's up to. But it, it, it's kind of irrelevant, which one? Sometimes people will tell me, oh, my dog definitely understands. And I, I look at it as a trainer and go, no, no, he got no idea. Right? He'll do that. Like, he'll do that to anyone who shows the cue. Right? <laughs> um, but it doesn't matter, right? Like the, the end result is the same. But then what ends up happening is that, you know, classical conditioning is really important to us and dogs. And that's like any signal that reliably, reliably predicts another one will take its function. So, you know, that, that comes to us like that's Pavlov. He rang his bell, he gave the dogs food. He rang the bell, he gave the dogs food. And before too long, when he ring the bell, the dog salivates in anticipation of food, right? Yeah. Well, that, that 
that continues to carry on and on and on. And the dog pays attention to all those signals, like I said, that are human signals that uh, you don't necessarily um, are not necessarily in control of, but he sees. Mm. So you imagine you've trained a dog very clinically, exactly as I explained to interrupt self-harm behavior. You show the dog, Hey, this is the behavior that I want. You jump on me. I take the food and you smother me. You interrupt, lick my face, whatever it is. You train that as a behavior. You then say to the dog, like, here's the cue. The cue is me acting like this. And then the dog's got it and he'll do it in real life, right? He sees you act, he sees you pick at your arm and then he starts interrupting that behavior. The thing is, before you do that, there will be other cues. You will, whether you're aware of it or not, you'll release a scent, Mm. you'll start acting in a certain way and the dog will notice that. And then you think your dog's being disobedient because you've put them in a down and you're not picking yourself, but like you're not picking (laughs) your skin and then they break the down and then you're like, why are you disobedient? Like being disobedient. Oh, okay. Like you're, yeah. you're preempting this, right? And so Jazz brings up the, the the most difficult thing in training those types of dogs then is what they call intelligent disobedience, mm-hmm. where the dog is allowed to not do what it's told because it has an idea of a higher uh, hierarchy of what's mm-hmm. important, right? And that's where the real sort of very cleverness of the dogs comes out. So like I say, I think that it's very interesting uh, does the dog really know what it's doing versus is it just running? And and the truth is it doesn't matter it, it, as long as it has its end result. And very often people will tell you, you know, that my dog definitely understands this and it's not worth pointing out the opposite right? <laughs> because, because it is performing the function. Yes. But more often than not, it is just that the dog knows the sequence of events. The dog goes like, oh, okay, this always happens. When you start picking yourself, I'm meant to jump on you and I get reinforced for that. Like I, you know, something good happens to me, Yeah. but then I can see when that's going to happen because you start to act in a certain way. Now that becomes the cue. Now it, that, that we see, you know, sometimes I believe sometimes a dog really truly understands its job. And I think other times the dog doesn't. It's just running the cycle. But, you know, we see this in the working dog space where um, when, when we train police dogs, when we train dogs to go to the police, they, they, they're just mechanical, right? They're just doing the things. The dog knows me. I lay the track. Jazz gets out the gets out of the car. The dog follows. The dog knows full well it's tracking me. It gets to the end. It bites me. You know, I'm wearing the bite suit or the sleeve or whatever. But then I can take that off and I can pat the dog and the dog's like, okay, we, we ran the cycle. We did the game, right? Yeah. I, I but what we do as trainers is we are teaching the dogs those skills, right? But then what you see from those dogs, the, the two last dogs that we um, sold, that we prepared to sell went to Victoria Police. And you see them now, they're police dogs. They get out of the car and they're like, I'm going to go hunt someone down. Right? <laughs> they get out with intent Shoot. and they use that skill sets that we showed them. So that's kind of like for us as trainers, whether the dog really understands what it's doing and has that emotional connection to the work or not, it's kind of irrelevant because we're just going to teach it the way to do these things. And then it will develop its own feelings about it when it starts to do it for real. Um, But we see that, especially in working dog space, that that's always been my experience, especially with those, like those special forces type dogs is you, they learn a lot of skills. It's very mechanical. We teach them, you know, with dogs, you want to break things into the smallest component part, so, you know, that step one in teaching someone, a dog to be unclipped and go like hunt a person down off leash, that doesn't look anything like that step one. Step one looks like, hey, like you know, go to this marker board that's three meters in front of me, right? Mm-hmm. Get on this place cop because it's just like the, 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 the start of go to something. 
Yeah. Um, and then we build on that. We build from that skill set. And it, yes, it becomes a search for a person off leash in a big area. But when we hand them over, it's still just a search for a person off leash in a big area. And what happens before too long is then it becomes the hunt for the bad guy that I'm going to engage when I find him. Right. Like it, that, that changes for the dog along the way. Um, so same in assistance dogs. You can just train, you just train these things as like, here's a, here's a little trick that, you know, and eventually it gets to the point where the dog may or may not think I'm still doing the trick or I'm really, truly helping this person. Either way, it doesn't matter so long as it does it. I got one last question I find really interesting and you can answer this. I don't know if you can answer it from a personal point or from a training for other people point or just from a general knowledge point. But the just the idea around training for that self-harm break pattern breaking, when somebody is looking for an assistance dog, like I – like the the idea around self harm is some is a well it's a range of things from a range of people based on other conversations I've had. So for some people it it creates a euphoria that takes them away. For some people it is a form of self loathing or self hatred. So, but across the board it's interesting. Like, is there resistance from somebody wanting a dog to pattern interrupt, or is there a is there a process for that? So for me, like, so like I'd, I'd pick my skin um, and, oh man, I've had many different people tell me different reasons why it happens. But um, regardless, uh, one thing that I had to work with my dog, Genta, by the way, is her name, um, work through with her is when she'd interrupt me, I'd tell her to stop, like stop interrupting me. No, no, yeah. I'm going to continue this. And I'd, I'd, you know, sometimes push her off yeah. because I was actively making a choice to do that. Other times it was very subconscious that I was doing it and she'd come and interrupt and be like, oh yeah, cool, no worries. Um, sweet, thanks dog. Uh, but yeah, she she had to learn to be persistent um, because there are times where I wouldn't want to to basically pay attention to her. Yes. It's kind of like when uh, you kind of just don't want to hear someone's opinion or you don't want to hear someone's help or guidance or, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, nine out of 10 days, maybe you will. And then you hit a point where you're just like, hey, not today. Like that's, you know, so... I had to work with her on how to continually be uh, persistent. And if that meant instead of pushing her away and me stopping, instead go do something else like that is an incompatible behavior with picking my skin. So mm. I, rather than continue to push her, her away, um, I would have to go choose um, instead of just continue what I'm doing and stop picking, choose for myself to go do something else, like go throw the ball for her instead. Yeah. If I'm in a, in a place that's appropriate to do so or yeah. get up, go walk her somewhere and, I then can't pick my skin at that time. Yeah. So um, that, uh, I don't know if that was really answering your question. but Yeah, that's no, I do, it's such an interesting um, dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like on a deeper level, I always wanted to help. But obviously yes. in some of the worst moments, you don't want to accept help for X, Y, Z reasons and things like yeah. that. Um, but that's, uh, in my opinion, something important to build um, with the dog is that that level of persistence. But before you can build that persistence, you have to really make sure that they understand the behavior, whether mm. it's on a deeper level or if they just understand the sequence of events, but they must be able to understand that they are in fact doing the correct thing and you're playing a game with them and like, oh, how much are you willing to like show me you want to do this? Like how willing are you to to um, succeed in, in getting that point of stopping me from scratching my skin? You know, um, are, wow. you, uh, are you willing to run 100 meters to come to not – 
that it would be this case, but like, are you willing to run a hundred meters or will you only do it if you're like, you know, within the arm reach of me? Like how, how much do you want to do this? Um, you know, if there's, there's two chairs in the way and completely blocking you, are you going to try to wiggle around and figure out how to come stop me from doing it? Like, or are you going to go, ah, that's too hard, you know? Um, so you got to build up that persistence, but they must know what, what the task is first. That Super is important. next level training, isn't it? Your uh, input back? No, I agree totally. And I think that sort of, it just speaks to the type of dog. So, you know, uh, you, you do need uh, to, to really perform those tasks correctly. It needs to be a particular type of dog that has that, that persistence. And, mm. and you, we talk about it in, in terms of drive in the dog space. So like usually what I say to people is, you know, most people who have never trained their dog and they just want to, you know, they want to get into it. And they've never, you know, used food in training or anything like that. You say to people like, Hey, when you fill up your dog's food bowl and you go to feed him, see that arousal level that comes of that and how excited your dog gets like, and how willing your dog is to, you know, bash through the couch in order to get to that food. Like that's, that's, that's the same intensity you can get from behaviors because the dog is only going to do these things in order to earn something. Yeah. So, so the hard part then often in training is saying to people like, we actually don't need to train the thing. We don't need to make the dog any better at interrupting self-harm behavior. What we have to do is make the dog want things more because it knows that the path to getting things is doing the work. And if it only kind of wants the thing at the end, it's only kind of going to do the work. Right. Yeah, yeah. But then in an assistance role, this is why I don't like to deal with assistance dogs is because like for us, we create monsters. Our dogs are headaches. Like you, 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 <laughs> my own personal dog who I compete with, but is, you know, he's not a, he's a working dog in so much as that we do sports. He's not a police dog. He's not anything. He's my pet away from me. He is a disaster. Like he is unhandleable. He is an unmanageable hot mess because he's a lot of dog, right? Like he is because I've built him to be obsessed with things that I can then hold over him and say like, I mean, you got to do the work and then I'll give you the thing. So when your dog slices his leg open and you go overseas. Yeah. So for example, um, my dog sort of degloved his leg. I was on my way years ago. I was on my way overseas and I was, I'd stopped on my way to the kennel to drop him off because he has to stay in a kennel when I go away. Um, I stopped and he degloved his leg. So then he can't go in the kennel for a week. So that means Jazz has to come over to my house every day because there's precious few people around that can actually handle that dog, right? Especially wow. when he, because like he only feels sorry for himself for like 10 minutes, right? Like after that, he's like, oh, I'm stitched up. I'm good to go. Like let, put me back in the game. And so he's unmanageable by my family. Mm. And so this is the issue that you face like that for us. I, that's in the working dog space. That's what I want. I, I want, like, I don't care. Like the dog, like I want the dog to be extreme in drive and I want the dog hundred percent persistent. But because they're not, they're not livable and nobody has to live with them. But yeah, they live in a kennel. They come out, they've got a handle that really knows what they're doing. They're not being asked to go places out of drive and just be part of the world. Mm. But that's what they are doing with assistance dogs. And so it's this very fine line of building a dog that, that's why it's a huge skill set, right? That, yeah. That's why, and, and like I say, it's a particular type of dog that is able to do it. It's a, it's a, very, um, it's a very thin genetic funnel of dogs that are really capable of it. And, and of course you can train dogs to do it, but will they do it as well? You know, that's the question, right? You guys are quite fascinating. This has been awesome. Do you want to share with the listeners where they can find out more about you? Go ahead, Jess. <laughs> um, so on social media, I've got Instagram, um, prime canine training, Facebook, prime canine training as well, I believe. Um, 
got a website, prime-canine, all spelled out like uh, C-A-N-I-N-E, so prime-canine.com. Um, that's, so I got a YouTube as well. I think that's just Prime Canine as well. So, um, Pat? Uh, yeah, you can find me, Pat Stewart. I'm, you'll find me on all those things. I've got a link tree. If you find me on any one of them, it'll take you to all the rest. Go to Instagram, Pat Stewart. He's got some other podcasts. Yeah, I do a podcast. Um, so it's called the Canine Paradigm. It's a podcast about dog training. I do it with my good friend, Glenn Cook. Um, people can check that out. There's 240 something episodes there. People can listen to if you're interested in learning about dog training and behavior, that kind of stuff. Three, three or four I'm on. Yeah, just as- <laughs> Hear, hear us talk shit again for a while. Yeah. I kind but of am interested. The process shows <laughs> the journey. Yeah. Oh, it's been it's been brilliant. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and having a chat with me and the listeners. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks, everyone.